You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, let's get started. It is, all right. All right. Uh, most of y'all know who I am, uh, Andrew Pearson, Dean and Rector of the Cathedral Church of the Advent here in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, often known as just the Advent. And it's my great honor and pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Thomas Beavers, uh, the pastor of New Rising Star Church known as the Star, uh, in the East Lake neighborhood of Birmingham. Uh, Thomas is a graduate of uh, Kentucky State and Beeson Divinity School, where he got his MDiv as well as his DMIN. And uh, Thomas, really glad that you're able to be with us today. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so uh, we're doing this by Zoom. This is the Dean's class, and um, glad that y'all are able to be uh, a part of this. But before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your arm is never too short to save. And so we pray that even now uh, you would reach down into our nation, that you would affect healing, and Lord, that you might use us as instruments of your peace, and Lord, that we would have the courage to follow after the voice of the Good Shepherd, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Right, well, Thomas, tell us a little bit about, uh, about ministry at the Star. You, you followed your grandfather, who had been pastor there for 35 years. Tell us what it was like to grow up uh, in that area of Birmingham and what it's like to now pastor the church uh, that, that really discipled you. Yes, yeah, so our church is located in zip code 35206. That zip code is high crime and it's high poverty. I believe that the two are interconnected. When people don't have what they need, they take it by any means necessary, which is also connected to a disparity in education. When kids grow up and they are unable to get a quality education, uh, it throws them back into the cycle of poverty. Even if they end up getting a job, they become a part of the working poor. Uh, and when they are thrown back into the cycle of poverty, they have to climb high just to get to the bottom, uh, which leads on to crime. So all of that is kind of a cycle uh, that we kind of grew up seeing inside of the zip code. Uh, New Rising Star Church was one of the two only churches where I have ever been a part of. Mm. Uh, our church is uh, 57 years old this year. 57 years, we've only had four pastors. Uh, my grandfather, Dr. Tommy Chappelle, as you said, was the third and longest tenured pastor. He pastored from 1975 until May of 2010. He retired in May of 2010, and then I became the fourth pastor of the New Rising Star Church, also known as the Star. Uh, we decided that we want to be the change that we want to see. And so our church is very involved in what it is that we call community development. Uh, we see community development as how we develop people. Uh, communities are people and not buildings. It does not mean that you don't need a building, but the vision dictates the kind of building that you need. So we develop people in six ways. We do it through education, financial literacy, workforce development, housing, recreation, and the church. Our mission of our church is twofold. We exist, number one, to know Christ and make him known to the entire world. We exist, number two, to help people have access to a high and a better quality of life on earth. And so we have different programs and entities in those various six areas. In education, we have an early childhood development center. We have a state-certified pre-K program. We also have after-school enrichment, summer enrichment, uh, and spring break enrichment. Basically, when school is out, we are in. As far as financial literacy, our church has a credit union, the NRS Community Development Federal Credit Union. 
Uh, the credit union is insured by the uh, NCUA, which is the federal government. Uh, and the reason we have a credit union is started out on my grandfather's ministry to combat payday lending in the area. That's a huge problem inside of our area. Uh, we also are involved in workforce development. We partner with agencies like Work Faith Birmingham, Hope Inspired Ministries, uh, to help people get jobs. And then we also own a few homes in the community. And uh, we've been fixing those up for affordable income house uh, rental uh, properties as well. Uh, and then we have uh, recreation in our family life center. Uh, and then last but not least, there's the church. And so we believe that for any community to have a shot to prosper, uh, you have to make an investment in all six of those areas. So that's just a little bit of the work that God is allowing us to be a part of. Now, most people, when they get ordained, don't get ordained to do a fraction of that. I know, what, right? What you've just described is a kind of holistic ministry that I would say many, many pastors wish that they could do, but they either don't have the skill set or they don't have the congregation that's going to support them in that endeavor. And so is this, you know, a lot of what's going on, is that, is that groundwork laid by your grandfather? And, and what, kind, what does it take for you to sustain that? What are the biggest obstacles to the ministry? I'd love to hear kind of day in, day out what this looks like. Yeah, so a lot of the groundwork was laid by my grandfather. So a lot of it was there before I got there. Um, the credit union is 24 years of age. It was there uh, before I got there. The Community Support Corporation, I believe, started in 2005 or 2006. And uh, it is under our Community Support Corporation. It's called the New Rising Star Community Support Corporation, where we house all of our educational efforts, uh, and all of our housing efforts. That was there uh, before I got there as well. The Family Life Center, uh, we have a 30,000 square foot Family Life Center uh, that has a gym, and it has a walking track, uh, it has a weight room, it has a commercial kitchen, and things of that nature. All of that was there uh, before I got there. And so uh, I wish I could say that I had the skill set to run every single part of it. Uh, but I personally don't have the skill set to run every single part of it, but I got a great group of people around me. Uh, so areas where I'm not skilled to run, I have other people who are able to run. So people who are skilled in education, people who are skilled in finance, uh, and we're just, you know, just, just doing our part and trying to play our part to make things better, to really empower people. So one thing I would say is that, you know, we look at ministry in two different ways. We relieve people through outreach. That's Matthew 25. You know, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. Uh, when I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was sick and in prison, you came to visit me. He says, when you do it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. But if you only do relief, you teach how to, you, you teach people, uh, you give people a fish. Uh, but until you begin to empower people, you teach them how to fish on their own. And so the other part, the community development piece, uh, is not necessarily relief, it's empowerment. So these are things that we can do to empower people uh, to be able to stand on their own. And what would you say are some of the big impediments to, to that twofold mission that you all have uh, in, in the East Lake community? I think one of the biggest impediments sometimes is the mindset of people. Uh, sometimes people can be so used to being dependent that they want to be relieved 
but they don't want to take the next step to be empowered. If you understand what I'm saying. So I think the biggest impediments is the mindset of people sometimes. Uh, because what happens when I want somebody to give me a fish, but then when I give you a way out to where you can provide on your own over time, uh, you have to put in the work yourself. And so you have to have a mindset to be able to move forward on your own. I think that's one of the biggest impediments uh, is the mindsets of people. I think another impediment sometimes, uh, I think, you know, every vision needs provision. Uh, and sometimes the, uh, the enormity of the vision can be hindered by provision. Um, and so uh, that can be an impediment as well. Um, you can never have enough manpower, uh, if you understand what I'm saying, and you can't pay everybody uh, for the services that you provide. And so those can be some of the impediments as well. I love the little phrase that y'all have uh, that I might just steal, that your, your aim is to enlarge heaven. Yes. Uh, enlarge the population of heaven. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, I think at least the white church has a hard time, and I know that's a generalization and, and it, nothing's monolithic, but, but the, it either is completely social justice, community involvement, or it's a high emphasis on uh, the spiritual side uh, evangelistic and for some reason the white church hasn't been able to join those together in a way that the african-american church has yeah and and of course the bible doesn't separate them right uh, so tell me if you're willing a little bit about what is what does ministry look like for you right now with on the one hand covid but on the other hand now um the, the, the protests and the aftermath of the terrible death of George Floyd, which, I mean, it took something like that to, to get people's attention. Um, right. and, and so what does it look like to pastor your people? Yeah, so I, like so many pastors, I'm, I'm still pastoring our people online. If somebody had told me that in 2020, um, you were not going to be able to meet with your congregation in the traditional state form and fashion, uh, for over two months, three months, four months, and that God was still going to sustain your ministry and uh, even cause you to be able to thrive, I would have thought that you were absolutely crazy. Right. But here we were going along in 2020. Everything was, I guess, you know, as normal or what we thought was normal. And then a whole COVID-19 pandemic happened. So the interesting thing is that in the beginning of 2019, I started hearing uh, men and women of God say that 2020 is the year of clear vision. Uh, but now that we're in 2020, uh, sometimes I just beg to ask the question, who in the world saw all of this coming? Right. Uh, since the vision was supposed to be so clear. Who in the world saw the death of Kobe Bryant? Who in the world saw uh, COVID-19 coming? Who in the world saw uh, the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, uh, and who in the world saw race relations and racial tensions rising the way that is rising right now? So what has it been like to pastor our people? People, Primarily, we've been pastoring online. COVID-19, in a weird way, uh, was one of the worst things that happened to the world. But also, in a weird way, I believe that it was God's way of sitting everybody down and just showing that, hey, I'm God, that I'm the source. Uh, everything and everybody else is nothing more than a resource. So COVID-19... You know, we kind of adapted. 
Uh, we kind of adapted to doing ministry online, adapted to being, being able to quarantine and being able to rest. Uh, I was so busy and I did not realize how many things I needed to stop doing that I was doing. Uh, gave me a time to relearn my wife, gave me a time to relearn my children, gave me a time to relearn my family. Uh, we have not eaten dinner together as much as we have eaten dinner together in 2020 uh, than, than, than ever before. And it's all because of COVID-19. Uh, my kids play sports and I got a lot of kids. So on the weekends, we used to go in here, there and everywhere trying to support everybody. But for everything to just shut down and not have to go all over town to, uh, to the kids' sports, I know that may sound cruel to a kid, yeah. uh, but I was just glad to be able to have a breather right. and be able to spend time with my family and for us to be strengthened, to be able to have Bible study together, to be able to eat together. So that's wonderful. And in the middle of me enjoying that break, uh, here it is, Amon Arbor gets killed. Rihanna Taylor gets killed. And then all of us saw uh, what it is that, you know, many perceive to be the closest thing to a modern day lynching in the streets with the killing and the murder of George Floyd. And here it is. I feel like I'm getting tapped all over again to get back into the fire. Um, if I had it my own way, I would still be resting. Um, but I'm getting called and pulled on in so many different directions just concerning race relations. And uh, the only reason I'm moving is because I believe that it's needed. I believe that people need to know more about it. I feel that God has placed me in a very unique position. And I'm just trying to share uh, everything that I know and everything that God has uh, put upon my heart to share concerning race relations to make a contribution. I hope to make things better. Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's hard to to pastor people in this sort of disembodied way, and um, and, and I remember you telling me that, that y'all coming back together is hard because telling your congregation that they can't hug one another is just, yeah, ain't gonna happen. Um, so, you know, I, and I, you do a really good job, I think, of putting stuff out there on social media. I've shared uh, the word that you gave uh, in the aftermath of, um, of George Floyd's death. And, um, and right now, um, what kind of questions are your people asking you? Like, what, what's their point of need? That, that they, how do they need God to speak into the situation? Um, so quite interestingly, my people have not asked me a lot of questions. Uh, it's mostly been white people asking me questions. Right. Uh, white, uh, white pastors, white businessmen that uh, I have relationships with, white friends, they've been asking me questions and just trying to, you know, uh, ask me to help them understand like what's really going on just a little bit better. So, you know, for the first time, uh, I've had these relationships, but we've never really talked about things like this. And God has given an open door for me to be very candid, for me to be very honest, for me to be very blunt, but also for me to be very loving as well. So I've just been trying to answer whatever questions people have, but mostly it's been white people asking questions uh, like, help me understand racism. Tell me about a time uh, when you experience racism inside of your life. Um, how does racism, uh, can you address racism without talking about politics? They've been asking me things like that. Um, 
asking me specifically about George Floyd and like, how can we help? Like, what do we need to do? So those are some questions I've been getting. Yeah. So if, um, yeah, if there is a word that you would want to give uh, to, to a white church that, that feels paralyzed right now, that, that wants to do something, that wants to speak in the situation, that wants to move the ball, what would you say? Okay, so one thing in particular. Um, two Sundays ago, I had the opportunity to speak at a protest at Kelly Ingram Park. Uh, that protest started out peaceful, and then later uh, it wasn't so peaceful. But the part that I was at, it started, at, it started out peaceful. The word that God has given me uh, is a word he probably gave me about three years ago, and it just fits for a time like this. And that's the word, lift every voice. And so Google the Pledge of Allegiance, also Google the Black Negro National Anthem, list, uh, lift every voice. And uh, my challenge is that the Pledge of Allegiance would never become a reality without the Black Negro National Anthem, lift every voice. And so. The Pledge of Allegiance says that I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, and lift every voice. The fame is just the title of that song, lift every voice. Until every voice is lifted, the states in America will never be united. There will never be liberty and justice for all. We will never be one nation under God. And so oftentimes when we see injustices in society, it's the voice of the black people being lifted, the marginalized voice being lifted, the voice of the oppressed being lifted. But until those that are unaffected start to lift their voice, until white people start to lift their voice, until black people who experience a certain amount of what it is that we call the American dream and who are comfortable because they have experienced that until they stop being silent and they start lifting their voice until everybody starts to say in unison, hey, this is absolutely wrong and starts to cry out against the injustices of society. Nothing is going to change. So I've been really challenging white silence and I've also been really challenging uh, well-to-do black silence because it's not just white people who have been silent, black people who've achieved a certain level of success in the United States of America, and they're not affected directly now. They have been silenced as well. So I've been challenging people not just to speak up to God in prayer, but to speak out to the world against injustice. A lot of times we speak up to God in prayer and we think we get a pass just because we prayed about it. Uh, but speaking up to God in prayer is safe. It's not until you speak out to the world that everybody else on earth hears what it is that you're saying. You cry out against injustice that is unsafe, but although it is unsafe, it is needed. And I believe that it is pleasing in the eyesight of God. I've also been telling people that when you lift your voice, these are some things that you need to, to address when you speak out to the world. Number one, uh, if you see an injustice, if you see something, say something. If you see something that's wrong, say that it is absolutely wrong. In your sphere, in your circle of influence, as people are asking you questions, do not be afraid to say, hey, this is absolutely wrong. Also, I've been telling white people and black people you cannot be afraid to speak and to articulate that black lives matter. Here's the confusion about that statement. We never said that black lives matter only. We say black lives matter. We know that all lives matter. 
We just need help with black lives that matter because black lives are the ones that are in danger. Black lives are the ones that seem to continuously be singled out and are killed at the hands of white police officers when the men and the women who are black are, are unarmed. It seems to be a repetitive narrative. And so all lives don't matter if black lives don't matter because black lives are a part of all lives. Uh, if this was the Jewish Holocaust, the hashtag would not be Black Lives Matter. The hashtag would be Jewish Lives Matter. But because of this instance in the United States of America, when we lift our voices together, we cannot be afraid to say Black Lives Matter. That doesn't mean that white lives don't matter. That doesn't mean that blue lives don't matter. That doesn't mean that other lives don't matter. But Black lives seem to be the ones that are being singled out at this particular moment in time and the ones that need help. And so when we lift our voice, we have to cry out against injustice and we cannot be afraid to say and to articulate Black Lives Matter. Here's the last thing I would say about that and stop me if I'm talking too much. No, go on. A lot of times we use the excuse. Uh, we say, well, you know, the world has a tendency to pull you to a black side or a white side. And as the church, we say, well, we just need to be on the Lord's side. That sounds really, really good. But I believe that it's a clever trick of Satan to keep us neutral and to do nothing. The Lord's side in heaven is going to put you on a side in earth. The Lord's side in heaven is not neutral. The Lord's side in heaven is justice. Justice is all in the Bible. So the Lord's side in heaven is going to put you on a side in earth. And that side in earth is not a black side. It is not a white side. It is a side called justice. So for everybody who says we just need to be on the Lord's side, until you clarify and define what that means, it gives you an excuse to sit there and say nothing and to sit there and do nothing. God's side is not neutral. His side is the side of justice. Yeah. How do you, you know, one of the, the you know, as, as a white pastor, you know, how do you move people who are apathetic? You know, because, you know, you could have all kinds of programming. You could, you know, and even now in times, you know, normally this would be a live interview that people would be there in person. But now if they don't like what we're saying, they can just turn it off. Uh, yeah. If I were to, you know, to say, hey, we're going to have, um, uh, a, you know, we're going to encourage you. I was at Kelly Ingram when I heard you and others speak that night. And if but the the people who came along were the people who maybe didn't need to come along you know what i mean that they, they they'd already had their hearts moved and so i'm trying to figure out how to speak to people who might even say okay black lives matter but i almost want to get them to a place of no black lives have intrinsic value black lives are precious Black lives should be supported. So more than as you're saying, just the acknowledgement, how do you, and I know it's a heart change and only the Holy Spirit can do it, but that's, that's where I think a lot of white pastors are struggling are how to get people's attention to say, we've, we've got to move on this. Right. And so uh, that is a heart matter. Um, but at the same time, a lot of times it doesn't get anybody's attention until it hits home, and that's the unfortunate thing. And so you have to begin to ask people to put yourself in the shoes of somebody else. 
because even as a black man, I'm privileged. You know, there's a such thing as white privilege, but white privilege is not the only privilege. I grew up privileged. My mom is a judge. To this day, she's a judge in Jefferson County. She's the circuit court judge. My grandfather was a prominent pastor in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. And so I grew up learning about racism. I was taught that racism was alive, that racism is, is real. Uh, but at the same time, I was sheltered away from racism. I was sheltered so much that when we moved into the social media age and we began to see things getting filmed, uh, I thought that racism was getting worse when in actuality I found out it's not getting worse, it's just getting filmed. Uh, and so when I saw things getting filmed and I began to see my black brothers and sisters marching, I used to ask the question, man, does it take all of that? You know, should we really be this angry? Are people really being singled out because of the color of their skin? So even I had to be moved because I was sheltered from racism. So I wondered, you know, are people really being singled out because of the color of their skin until in 2014, my wife and I traveled to Disney World with our children and our grandchildren. I know I don't look old enough to be a grandfather, uh, but we went to Disney World and we were staying at a condominium uh, just outside of Disney Park. And one morning we got up, we decided to go for a walk. And uh, I was just walking with my wife and children and grandchildren, they stayed back, they were asleep. So we were walking through this affluent neighborhood, other people were walking. And uh, all of a sudden there was a helicopter that started flying over the neighborhood. And it was circling the neighborhood. And then we noticed that everywhere we walked, the helicopter was circling only us and it was following us. So we looked up, and when we looked up, the helicopter kind of tilted over as if it was turning, but it was just hovering in place. And the helicopter said, Sheriff. As soon as we looked down, two sheriff cars came to a screeching halt right in front of us. Two white police officers got out of one car, one Latino police officer got out of another car. They pointed their guns at my wife as well as myself. They told us to freeze, get on the ground, put our hands behind our back, lay flat on our bellies. They came and handcuffed us. They detained me in one car, detained my wife in another car, and they detained us for about an hour and 15 minutes. The handcuffs were so tight that my wrist started to go numb. That was the first time I had ever been handcuffed. As you can imagine, I am infuriated because I have no clue of what's going on. Uh, the neighbors started to come out of the house, and they started high-fiving the neighbors, saying, hey, we got them. And the neighbors are like, yeah, we got them, we got them. And I'm like, what in the world is going on? And so finally, they get us out of the car, and the first thing the white police officer said to me, he says, if you run, I'm going to tase you. I said, sir, I'm not going to run, but can you explain to me what I did? He said, well, let me run your driver's license. So he runs my driver's license, and he finds out whatever's going on, it was not us. So he says, hey, there was a robbery or a burglary in this neighborhood, and you two, out of all the people who were walk walking, he said, you two fit the description of the people who did it. Now, we're going to let you go, but I just want you to know that you fit the description of the people who did it. They Googled me. They find out I was a pastor, and then they came back and they apologized, but the damage had already been done. It was not until I got away from my privilege. It was not until I got away to a place where nobody knew my mom was a judge. Nobody knew that my grandfather was this prominent pastor in Birmingham, Alabama, that I, too, began to experience that people really are profiled because of the color of their skin, uh, that people are really harassed by police. And I began to see that could have went an entirely different way. I was mad, I was frustrated, agitated, 
I was infuriated and I wanted to say something uh, to challenge the police. But if I did it, you know, I began to think it's not about being right. It's about living to see the next day. So it was not until I experienced it personally for myself that it moved me from a place of, is it really that or are we just overreacting to, no, nah, this really does happen. Imagine somebody else who speaks out in that moment. They could have ended up getting shot. I would have ended up getting shot. I would have ended up being killed. And so you have to begin to ask people to put themselves into somebody else's shoes. If this happened to your son, would it be right or would it wrong? If this happened to your wife's son, would it be right or would it be wrong? How would it make you feel? If this happened to your white grandchildren or your black son or your black grandchildren, how would it make you feel? The only thing I would beg and implore people, do not wait until it hits your front door to believe what's really going on. Two things that COVID-19 and racism have in common, nobody believes they really exist and harm people until it hits their front door. You know, your story, I wish it were uncommon, but to your point, I mean, so many of my African-American friends have have had similar stories, not as traumatic as that, but certainly getting pulled over, even though there's not a violation, just pulled over because they met the description of somebody that had been reported doing something they ought not to have done. And, and that description really is just being a person of color, right. being a black person. Right. And, um, you, know, I, you know, Birmingham, of course, has its own history, but you know, one of the things that, that I've noticed in Birmingham is just how segregated it is. And so even, even somebody like me who has African-American friends, like we come together, we hang out, we have meals, things like that. But then we kind of go back to our own neighborhoods, our own separate lives, and we just kind of live parallel to one another. Yeah. And, you know, I, I know that at least the mistake that, that is often made is, you know, if, if white folks want to understand the African-American experience, they'll often invite an African-American to come speak at their church or something like that. But it seems to me that it would be better if a white person went and visited someplace like the star for a month of services, and they would yeah. have a much better idea of the African-American experience than just having someone come in and speak. I totally think the same thing. You know, that's what Jesus did. Uh, in the Old Testament, God told us what to do. In the New Testament, he came and modeled it. So Jesus wrapped himself in human flesh. He left his comfort zone. He came down through 42 generations. He left heaven. He came down to earth. He was born of a virgin Mary. Uh, he was God incarnate. He was God in the flesh, the visible image of the invisible God. The Bible declares in Hebrews 4, verses uh, 15 and 16, that we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. There's nothing that we can experience that Jesus did not experience. He was tempted in all points, yet without sin. And because he put on human flesh, he cried like we cried. He hungered like we hungered. He suffered like we suffered. He thirsted like we thirst. He bled the same way that we bleed. For this reason, this is why the Bible says in Hebrews 4 and 16, therefore let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
We don't have to tiptoe around what we want, what we need from God, because you're going to somebody who's experienced everything that you've experienced. It's hard to ask somebody for something that they've never been inside of your shoes. But God has been inside of our shoes because he wrapped himself in human flesh. So if you want to know more about my experience, you will learn so much more about my experience by you coming and getting into the world in which I live than by me just coming to your church for a Sunday and preaching. I totally agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Thomas, what has been um, your experience of, you know, you, you went to Beeson Divinity School, which is, the, is an interdenominational seminary. And, um, and then, uh, of course, being a, a pastor of a place like The Star, and you and I are part of a pastor's group that kind of informally talks to me once in a while. You know, what, what do you think that we can do to, to better interact with one another? I mean, obviously, coming and, and, and spending a, a Sundays in the pews and really building relationships and, and getting to know one another. But, you know, what I'm afraid of, this is behind my question, like any sort of major traumatic event that happens in our country, after it happens, everybody's rearing and ready to go and saying, hey, let's, let's deal with the issue or let's show a lot of support. But as time goes on, it just kind of peters off. Yeah. And I don't want it to peter off. Yeah. So it's hard to come together when something is on the table if we have not already been together when nothing was on the table. And so I'm learning a lot of times, I'm developing relationships with white pastors and white clergy, but those relationships need to start to trickle down. Mm -hmm. If you understand what I'm saying. So what happens when you and I have a relationship, but our congregations don't have a relationship with each other. And so, you know, pool pitch swaps, all of that is cool, but at the same time, uh, it needs to go even further than that. And I think some ways to develop relationships uh, cross-culturally is maybe to do uh, service projects together and things of that nature and just seeing where we have common points of vision that intersect and uh, being able to come together along those lines. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, so much of the ministry that y'all are doing at this far is, is a realization of, as I said before, what so many churches and pastors would like to do and so I think that y'all are a real model of what it looks like to have a comprehensive and integrated ministry and, um, and, and grateful uh, that y'all are uh, where you are and, uh, and attempting to enlarge the population of heaven and yeah. taking care of people now. I mean, I think, yeah. that, you know, I, I've, um, you know, it, it's hard, I think, in, in my tradition for people to go deep and intimate with anybody, even Christians. And I mean, I think that, you know, what I try to impress on our congregation and, and I, I don't do a very good job of it, but trying to help people understand that if you're a Christian, you should have a closer relationship with other believers in Jesus rather than people who just fit your socioeconomic bracket. Right. So if you have a closer relationship with your neighbor who went to Alabama or Auburn or, you know, you vacation in the same spot, your kids go to the same school and they're not a believer and you have a closer relationship with them than other believers, that's a problem. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, it seems to me that 
the truth of the matter is that we ought to have a deeper relationship with brothers and sisters at a place like the star than our non-believing neighbors that we hang out with all the time. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree. You know, relationships uh, are built over time and relationships are not something that you want to force, but something that you want to happen intrinsically, but it can't happen intrinsically if we're never around each other. Right. In order for us to be around each other, you know, eventually we have to take steps to come out of our comfort zones yeah. uh, in order to do that. But I do think that it's needed uh, if that kingdom is going to come and our will is going to be done on and in earth as it is in heaven. So, you know, in heaven, it's not going to be a black and a white section Right. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's only going to be the believers of Jesus Christ. And Christ is supreme in heaven. Mm. And he is supreme on earth, but it's our job to bring that from heaven down to earth. Well, Thomas, God bless you, brother. I wonder if you'll pray for us before we get off. All right. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, thank you for what we have been able to share together. Uh, racial reconciliation has been a term that I've heard of for so long. It's been a term that we've uh, attempted to go down this road to bring heaven down to earth. Um, but Lord, we have so far to go. Got to pray right now that his hearts are turning. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that, uh, you will continue to open the door, and I pray that you will continue to free our minds to be able to walk through this open door that you ordained for us to walk through. And I pray that this conversation will help somebody, bless somebody, and educate somebody. Bless the church of the Advent. Bless their leadership, God. And um, God, I pray that you will bless us all as we seek to do your work and your will. In the mighty and matchless name of your darling son, Jesus the Christ, who's able to do absolutely anything but fail. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, and amen. Amen. All right, y'all, check out the star. Go online. Listen to Thomas Beavers. That's what you ought to do. Uh, uh, just download whatever he's preaching on and just listen to him when y'all are on your walks or on your jogs or when you're just piddling around the house. But, Thomas, God bless you, friend, and, uh, and I hope to see you in person one day soon. God bless you. Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. All right. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.